This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, when all has been heard, in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. This is not officially starting yet. I'm just talking to the people in the room. First of all, to check the mic and to confirm that it's very loud. So that's good. The other thing is um, we don't, apparently we live in a paperless society now. I had handouts for you to be physically handheld, and we are not doing that. What you have is an app. The GYC app has all the resources on it right now. So I'm going to do the weirdest thing, and that is encourage you to pull out your smartphones. Go get the, if you have not already gotten the GYC app, go ahead and get that, and you can go to the session, the seminar series, total member involvement, you can go to this session, it's time to eat grandpa, Click on that and it'll say view session resource and it'll have all the notes for what we're about to present right there in your hand. So I want to make sure that you know, because I'm going to go through a whole lot of quotes and I don't want to, we're not going to slow down and say like, well, where's that from? Can I write it down? No, 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 we're past paper. If you're still using paper, apparently you're old fashioned and going to soon to be outdated. Uh, but where we are now is all about the digital revolution. So if you are unfortunate enough not to have a smartphone, I really don't know what to do for you because the whole thing is predicated on you're all going to bring your smartphones, right? Which I'm, I'm sure there's a disconnect there because we encourage people to be off of social media and to disconnect from the digital age. But at the same time, in order to be a part of the seminar, you have to have your smartphone out. So take that up with somebody else of higher authority within me. But <clears throat> and to be clear, they did make a room switch. And for whoever's doing the recording of this, this is not on the recording right now. We're just talking in a room, not for publication, right? Um, but they did make a room switch. So this 371 is the new 361, all right? We used to be in 361, now we're in 371. If you're expecting someone else besides me, I'm sorry. Um, but they are somewhere else now. I think in 361. I think it's just been an even switch. Sorry? I'm doing total member involvement. My name is Cameron DeVazier, and that's me. If you're looking for uh, a seminar on music or relationships or something else, I'm sure we can talk about that, but I haven't prepared a thing in regards to that. I'm here for total member involvement, and that's it. Uh, so the session we're going to be doing is It's Time to Eat Grandpa. And speaking of time, I see that it's 2.47 for a seminar that starts at 2.45. So I don't know if everybody else is roaming the hall or if there is no everybody else, but this is it. Earlier, I was with Elder Wilson. Were any of you there with Elder Wilson? Okay. We were in a big room with Elder Wilson. Now you're in a small room with just me. Okay. That's what we get. But uh, with that, I'm going to just be my own sound guy here too for just a second. Is it too loud for you? Is it too quiet? I feel like I'm holding back because I usually project more and I don't want to hurt you. Fair? All right. We'll, we'll make it like this. There we go. And if it's bad, make a gesture or something. Let me know. Um, okay. So with all that preliminary out of the way, and these are being filmed, yes? Okay, that's new. Awesome. Do you want me to stand still? Are you good with me moving around? Are you kind of, if you want to check out and just set it on a pedestal, that's fine, but I'm probably going to move around. I'm going to be just generally roaming up here-ish. Okay. Thank you. Um, okay, I think we have all of the introductory uh, detritus out of the way, and we're ready to go to the actual meat and potatoes of our session. So, 
let's begin the recording and say good afternoon, everyone. That was good, good, good. I'm glad that you can be here. Um, continuing this seminar series, Total Member Involvement. Elder Wilson was our primary speaker uh, earlier in the session talking about the General Conference's Total Member Involvement Initiative, where it came from, and taking some questions and answers from our GYC young people. Uh, but now we're going to get more rolling up the sleeves and the nuts and bolts of some of the principles he addressed in passing we're going to dive into and study more exhaustively. We have a limited amount of time and a lot of material, so I'm going to ask that we will do this very simply. As I've already mentioned, if you have your GYC app, you can open it up, go to Total Member Involvement, and this session is It's Time to Eat Grandpa, and if you would click on that, it will tell you there's a little line that says View Seminar Resource. You can click that on, and it's got all the notes that we're going to be covering now. So uh, don't worry about having to write down anything or remember or take fastidious notes. It's already taken down there for you, and you can look it up later and build on it and share however you'd like. Uh, so with all of that being said, we're just going to bow our heads, and then we're going to open our eyes and go to work, okay? So let's have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this absolutely beautiful day that you've given us. Thank you for the, the occasion of GYC, and thank you for this particular topic about total member involvement and everyone in the room wants to be involved. Help us to understand what involvement even means. Help us to understand what our part as either a lay member or a pastor or worker, administrator, whatever our responsibility is, Lord, help us to understand what it is and to do it through your strength for your glory. For we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. All right. I want to start, the title itself is a little bit odd and I kind of designed it that way because I like it. It's time to eat grandpa. There's a big difference, you, you, you know, between it's time to eat grandpa and, well, for instance, you could leave every word of that sentence exactly as it is and change its meaning drastically by simply adding one piece of punctuation. And what is that? A comma. Where would you put it? It's time to eat, comma, grandpa, right? And that comma is the difference between it's time to eat, grandpa, versus it's time to eat, grandpa. Every word is exactly the same, but that comma makes a big difference. Now, why in the world are we talking about this? Let me explain. If you are a seven-day Adventist evangelist or you're giving a Bible study on the state of the dead or whatever, uh, either in a personal or small group or in a church setting or in a big campaign, if you're pre preaching about the state of the dead, at some point you have to deal with Luke 23:43. You're aware of Luke 23:43, I assume, right? That if you were to take Luke 23... Verse 43, and we can look it up. We, if, if, not every single word of everything we're going to do is written down. So if you have your Bible, you can take it out and see it. I don't care what version you have. You have the same problem. Luke 23, Jesus is on the cross in his final moments of life. And the thief on the cross turns to him and they have this conversation. And it says, and Jesus said to him, and I'm going to read it exactly as the punctuation demands. Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, my question for you, friends, is this Bible text accurate? Sounds like heresy even to ask the question. Are the words fine? Sure. But the way the punctuation is inserted, it changes the meaning of the text, right? So what gives us the audacity to say, that's what it says, but that's not what he meant? How do we have the audacity to do that? Well, we know because we know what the whole Bible teaches about the truth of the state of the dead. 
We also know that Jesus didn't go to paradise that day, right? Even after his resurrection, he said, don't cling to me. I have yet to ascend to my father. You know, you put these together and you just keep reading the broader context. You know that's not what Jesus meant. Also, you don't have to change a single word and you can still have the meaning there. You just slide that comma over. Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. The assumption, the, the importance is on the assurance and not the timing, right? We understand that. But every time you present the truth about the state of the dead to have somebody who has that misconception, you have to walk them through and say, this is what this really means. And this is how we know it. Seventh-day Adventists are very familiar with that problem comma. What I want to bring to your attention is there's another problem comma in the New Testament that I, I think needs to be addressed. Turn to the right in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Starting with verse 11, the Apostle Paul is writing to the believers in Ephesus about spiritual gifts and responsibilities and leadership positions in the church that God himself, Jesus Christ himself, has set up. In verse 11, regardless of what version you have, verse 11 is almost exactly the same in every translation. It says, and he himself, this is Paul saying that Jesus himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Well, clearly, has God called everyone to be a pastor or a teacher or an evangelist? No, the text is very clear. Some are, that means that others, in fact, if only some are, that means that most, what? Aren't. Only some are. Some are pastors, some are teachers, some are evangelists, some are prophets, and so, you know, you get this point. So he's outlining the responsibility on these leadership positions in the early church. It's in verse 12 that we have a challenge. Now, in the King James Version, if you were to read the job description of these some church leaders, if you read the job description, this is what you find, and I'm going to read it to you as the punctuation demands. And this is from the King James Version. Does anybody have a King James Version Bible with them today? Okay, look closely and make sure I'm, I'm saying it right, okay? For the perfecting of the saints, comma, for the work of ministry, comma, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So pastors, teachers, evangelists, apostles, they have how many job descriptions, how many job responsibilities? According to the text. Three. The first one is to do what? Perfect the saints. Then they're also supposed to do the work of ministry. And finally, they're supposed to edify or build up the body of Christ. That's a lot for those some to do. Now, if you have the King James Version, this is, not a, this is not a seminar on Bible translations. I'm not, certainly not going to go there. But is there anyone who has the New King James Version in the room? Okay, and anybody who's got an app, you know you've got like 100 versions. Okay, but look at the King James Version. Notice the difference. The wording is almost identical, but the punctuation changes the meaning. Okay, notice. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, comma, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, is there a difference there? Even though the words are almost exactly the same, that little punctuation shift, taking out that one little problem, comma, whole new. Now all of a sudden, those leadership, those some in leadership, their responsibility is to equip the saints so that they'll do the work of ministry, and then to build up the body of Christ. Of all the Bible translations that are out there, I'm not advocating this as your study Bible, let me be clear. 
But I think for this particular passage, the New International Version actually gets it most accurately. I know that's being recorded, and I'm going to get emails about that. But listen to how it renders this passage. To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Do you notice that? We've gone from three jobs to two jobs to now they have one job. To equip the people so that they'll do work and in turn the church is built up. That's a big difference. It's the difference between it's time to eat, Grandpa, and it's time to eat, Grandpa. And in the Seventh-day Adventist church, I believe... By the way, why do you think the punctuation... If punctuation was put in later in the Bible translations... You know, it's not like the Apostle Paul wrote with commas and periods and exclamation points. Why in Luke 23, 43 would they put the comma where they did? When it comes to the state of the dead. <laughs> it went along with what their preconceived notion of death was, right? Why do you think the commas were put in Ephesians 4 like they are? Because they had a picture of clergy work that went better with those comma placements, Right? But how do we know that that's not what the intent was? Well, the same thing we do with Luke 23. We just keep reading. We read the context. If you have Ephesians 4, take a look at this. Ephesians 4 continues saying, after it says, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, it says, till we all come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ. Now the key is here in verse 16. From whom, that is from Christ, the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Notice that according to the context of the passage, the Apostle Paul clearly meant that the work of the leadership was to get the membership to go to work and thus build up the church. Are we seeing that from Scripture? Good. Good, 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 good. Now, the Apostle Paul, let's go to 2 Timothy. Let me give you just a couple examples of this. And if you look at the life of the Apostle Paul in particular, and other church leaders as well, but the Apostle Paul, of course, was the most prolific author in the New Testament. Paul had this, he not only traveled and visited places and built up the work there, but then he would also always seem to have an apprentice with him or a mentor. You think of Timothy, you think of Titus, and he would traveling companion who would learn from him and then go about his business. And in one of his letters to, this time to Timothy, we're going to go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is where you get the charge, Paul's charge to Timothy. And you've probably heard this passage a lot. Have any of you ever been to an ordination service to, to the gospel ministry in the Seventh-day Adventist Church? Usually it happens at camp meeting. Uh, they're starting to do it in some places in local churches. But I guarantee that this passage was either mentioned or preached from or printed on the bulletin itself. Okay? This is the quintessential pastor passage. 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting with verse 1. The Apostle Paul says to Timothy, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, convince rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers 
and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions. Now notice this next line. Do the work of a what? An evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And I know when people are dissatisfied with their pastor, sometimes that happens, that they'll read that and they say, that's what we need. Somebody's going to preach the word and come preach the word to us. But look at the passage again. He told Timothy to, be, to preach the word and in so doing, do the work of an evangelist. Let me ask you a question. Who do evangelists preach to? Members or non-members? Right? Their goal is to win new souls to Christ, to present the message to them who have not yet heard. And the Apostle Paul was saying, here's what your ministry is. Preach the word to everybody and do the work of an evangelist. Let me tell you, there's a lot of Seventh-day Adventist pastors who have never even put on an evangelistic campaign. They're not doing the work of an evangelist. Who's doing the work of evangelists are, you know, the paid evangelists. <laughs> We've segmented, segmented it even farther and specialized it in a special little niche ministry that a few can do. Just a thought. We need to see that the biblical concept is different. By the way, this is a perfect time to throw in this statement. It's from the Upward Look, page 264. And for those of you just joining us, all of the notes, we're going to be going over a lot of uh, material here. All of the notes are available on the GYC app under Total Member Involvement, under It's Time to Eat Grandpa. Go to View uh, Seminar Resource, and you will have all the notes in your hand. And you can follow along if you'd like. But... Upward look, page 264. My brethren and sisters, there is something more for you to do than to sit in your churches Sabbath after Sabbath and to listen to the preaching of the word. You have a work to do for friends and neighbors. God requires. What was the word? Requi he doesn't suggest. He doesn't recommend. He doesn't sit there and hope. God requires that you visit these families and seek to create an interest in the truth for this time. You are not laboring together with God if you neglect the work of helping others to take hold upon eternal realities. Our ministers are not to be encouraged to hover about the churches to repeat to the believers week after week the same truths. Now I ask you, in 2016, what makes a good pastor? Most people are going to say, he's there every week and he preaches good messages. Let's go to the book of Titus. Titus, another apprentice, working with the Apostle Paul. We can take away from the context of this passage that Titus had been a traveling companion with Paul. And uh, this letter is written after Paul, I don't want to say abandons him, but leaves him behind. Right? I, I kind of chuckle to myself as I read this, imagining that Titus got this letter waking up one day when Paul had left without telling him, you know. But it says in verse 5, for this reason I left you in Crete. <laughs> but what was the reason Paul leaves? So what, already from that statement, we know that they've been traveling because Crete is not, they, uh, Crete is a special location they've been. And now we know that Titus has been left behind and Paul has gone on. And Paul says why he did that. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking. So the work was not finished in Crete, therefore he left Titus behind. To set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. 
Was Titus being left behind because now that they've built up a church, he was going to be the pastor of the church in Crete? No. He was going to be supervising all the churches in Crete, and he was going to be setting in order the things that are lacking, namely appointing elders over every congregation to get them in working order, right? So he was not, notice that Paul was not the settled pastor, neither was Titus. But what was supposed to be happening was that they would start a work, get new believers, get them into a community together, organize them to go to work, and then they would move on. This was the biblical concept of ministry in the New Testament church. Now we're going to go over some Adventist history. And we're going to kind of make this front area here a, um, a living timeline, if you will. So this is old, and over there is now. Are we good? Okay. Now, this is from 1886. This is Elder G.B. Starr. The work of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, uh, after the initial coming, you know, in the late 1840s and early 50s, they started getting their uh, uh, identity together theologically, and then they started doing, started planting churches and growing, and organization in the 1860s really took off, and that helped, and by the 1880s, things were just going gangbusters as far as church growth was concerned, and it got the attention of even non-Christian or non-Adventist uh, uh, individuals, and the Indiana Plains dealer, Indiana Star dealer, I think it was the name, uh, Indiana Plain dealer, asked him this question, by what means have you carried forward your work so rapidly? They said, how is it possible that your church is growing this quickly? And this was the response given. Well, in the first place, we have no settled pastors. So the first thing I can think of to let you know why we're growing so quickly is we don't have settled pastors. Now, clearly note, they did have pastors. They just weren't, what was the term he used? Settled. We don't have settled pastors. Our churches are taught to take care of themselves, while nearly all of our ministers work as evangelists in new fields. Okay, this was 1886. Why is the church growing so quickly? Because the few that are doing the administrative or uh, uh, pastoral work are out in the front lines doing evangelism, and the churches are taking care of themselves. That was a key to church growth. Now, let's fast forward to 1912. A.G. Daniels was the general conference president at the time, and in Los Angeles, California, he gave an address where he said this. And see if you notice, we're going to be noticing a trending shift in the Seventh-day Adventist church. This is 1912, right? President says, We have not settled our ministers over churches as pastors to any large extent. Now, is that different? Yes. That means that there are some now. Now, without looking ahead and without cheating, where do you think the settled pastors went to? Big churches or small churches? Big churches around Adventist institutions that had like hospitals or schools or printing presses. Well, it's a big church. You've got to have a pastor. Well, I'll let him go and explain. In some of the very large churches, we have elected pastors, but as a rule, we have held ourselves ready for field service, evangelistic work, and our brethren and sisters have held themselves ready to maintain their church services and carry forward their church work without settled pastors. 
So on the few places where they had a settled pastor, it was only in the large churches and it was on a rare occasion, most of the rule of thumb was, if you're a church, you don't have a settled pastor. This was 1912. Goes on. Now, he's not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I do think he was particularly insightful in what he said next. He says, and I hope this will never cease to be the order of affairs in this denomination. For when we cease our forward movement work and begin to settle over our churches to stay by them and do their thinking and their praying and their work that is to be done, then our churches will begin to weaken and to lose their life and spirit and become paralyzed and fossilized and our work will be on a retreat. 1912. He said, we have some settled pastors, a few, but if that goes across the denomination, it's the end of us. Fast forward. 1957. HMS Richard Sr. Speaking to a... uh, a ministerial institute, I believe it was, at the Washington Sand at the time, said the time of too many of our preachers, instead of being occupied with carrying the message into new fields, is taken up in settling church difficulties and laboring for men and women who should be towers of strength instead of subjects for labor. When I was baptized and later became a young preacher, we looked upon churches, that is, other denominations, you know, who had to have settled pastors over every flock as being decadent. Most of our preachers were out on the firing line, holding meetings, winning men to Christ, and raising up new churches. Then, every few months, they would come around and visit the churches that had already been established. Now, keep that framework, by the way. Every few months, he said, this was what normal was when I first came into the work. And where did they come up with this idea? He said, this seemed to be, according to our view of it, the plan of the apostolic church. Where did they get this plan of organization? From the Bible. They just read what the early church leaders said, we should do that too. And lo and behold, it worked. Let's move forward. 1994. This comes from the Seventh-day Adventist Elders Handbook. It's a green edition, just so you know. They color code every new edition so you can spot it. It's the green one. This is from page 23. During the Middle Ages, the clergy largely took over the work of the church. The Seventh-day Adventist church still struggles to overcome that medieval tradition and seeks to restore the biblical concept that all believers are ministers. So by 1994, in the Elder's Handbook, whoever wrote that, and I don't know who wrote it, but caught what we've been saying here and said there was a, in all Christendom, there was a clergy takeover of the, of the laity's work and even it's taken root in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It said, members in general and elders in particular need a greater vision of their significance and responsibility in the church and its work. That was 1994. Someone started paying attention. Hey, we've drifted here. Now, I went to give this particular presentation at one of our universities, and I usually like to bring the actual documents with me, you know, the church manual and whatnot in the elder's handbook. And this time I traveled and I forgot my elder's handbook. I said, ah, what am I going to do? Oh, that's easy. I'll just run over to the ABC and pick up another elder's handbook. And I went there and I looked for my green elder's handbook and it didn't exist anymore. It had become blue. Now, I don't have any issue with the color blue. It's fine. But not only had the cover changed, but the content had changed. 
there had been a rewrite of the elder's handbook. So I looked for page 23, and I, well, they did have a page 23, but that statement wasn't there anymore. On page 28, however, I found this statement, and see if you can notice a seismic shift. The Seventh-day Adventist church is growing rapidly, and many churches are understaffed. I had to think, what does that mean to be understaffed, church? Well, it explains it in the next sentence. In such situations, there may be large multi-church districts where pastors are shared among several church, or pastors shared among several churches and is able to visit each church only once every two or three months. It is the faithful service of local elders that help keep these churches strong and growing. It seems to have a strong implication that elders do their work whenever the church is, you know, not properly staffed. And in those poor multi-church districts, they might only see their pastor only every few months. Isn't that what HMS Richard said? That was kind of the ideal. That's what we used to think was good. But now we drifted away. The goal, the, the thinking is, and I know you've heard it in this ordination debate. We need more people out preaching the word. We've got to get the gospel to the world. That means we need more ordained ministers. False. What we need is more consecrated lay members who don't care about either ordination or recognition or certification or documentation. They're just going to open their Bible and win a soul to Jesus. We need a reformation in the methodology of sharing the three angels' message from individual members. That's why I'm so excited about the General Conference's Total Member Involvement Initiative. Now, we've gone through a brief overview of Scripture. We have looked at the historical documents from the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And now I want to give you some counsel from the Spirit of Prophecy. And what I'm going to share with you now is probably more Spirit of Prophecy quotes in one presentation than you've heard in a long time. I'm not apologizing for that. I'm just saying, hang on. But all of them, like I said, if you go to the app, the notes are available. You can look them up for yourself. Make sure I'm not taking them out of context. Look at all the pages that are next to it and get the full sense of what she was trying to say. But I believe as we go through here, you're going to see a pretty crystal clear picture of what Mrs. White understood the biblical concept of ministry and the work of ministers to be. And it's probably in stark contrast to what you've seen in most of your churches. And I'm not laying blame on administrators or conference leaders or pastors or lay members. I'm just saying we're all in this together. Let's have a little self-diagnosis, shall we? Here we go. This one comes from Evangelism, page 381. If the proper instruction were given, if the proper methods were followed, every church member would do his work as a member of the body. He would do Christian missionary work. But the churches are dying. And they want a minister to preach to them. Now listen very closely. They should be taught that unless they can stand alone without a minister, they need to be converted anew and baptized anew. Do you ever think of pastor dependency as, a, as grounds for rebaptism? We often say if you've drifted away from the church for 20 years or you've been caught up in a sinful lifestyle, you've been smoking, drinking, carousing, whatever it is you do, and those things need to be repented of and you need to have a fresh walk with Christ. But she classified dependency on a pastor 
as grounds for reconversion and rebaptism. Now, I don't know if she was being hyperbolic or if she literally meant you need to go into the baptistry and be bathed again. But she took it seriously, right? She said, they need to be born again. Here's one from the Ministry of Healing, page 149. Every church should be a training school for Christian workers. Its members should be taught how to give Bible readings, or what we would call now Bible studies. How to conduct and teach Sabbath school classes. How best to help the poor and care for the sick. How to work for the unconverted. That first line, every church should be a training school. Church should be school. Do you see the equivalence there? The church exists to train, equip, and deploy its membership in the mission of the church. Every church should be a training school. You should have the expectation that you're not going to church just for inspiration. You're going there for information, right? You're going there for a purpose of receiving not just a blessing, but a mandate and equipment and training so that you can be put to use for Christ. And we mentioned this earlier, but there's, we have got to get past mere faithfulness. We need a generation who wants to be useful for Christ too, right? Testimonies for the Church, Volume 7, pages 19 and 20. The greatest help that be given our people is to teach them to work for God and depend on Him, not on the ministers. Let the minister devote more of his time to educating than to preaching. I happen to think, by the way, because I do pastor a church, have other responsibilities, that people do have come, to, have come to expect a sermon every Sabbath when they shouldn't, but it's the fact of the matter. But you've got a pulpit. Start teaching instead of preaching. I mean, call it a sermon, but you're really giving them some instruction, Right? Just start teaching. We need pastors to teach people. Let the minister devote more of his time to educating than to preaching. Let him teach the people how to give to others the knowledge they have received. This is from the Pacific Union Recorder, April 24, 1902. She says, oh, what a work there is before us. Our ministers are not to hover over those who have received the message. Just as soon as a church is organized, let the minister set the members to work. The newly formed churches will need to be educated. The minister shouldn't devote more of his time to educating than to preaching. He should teach the people how to extend the knowledge of the truth. So notice there was an evangelistic role to make them believers in the first place, and then there's an education role to train them to make other believers in their turn. That it seems to be the work of the ministry was exactly like the Bible that talked about it. Your job is to make, as a minister, and I'm thinking myself here, I'm a pastor, to by public and personal soul winning, to raise up new believers, and then train, equip, and set them to work in an organized way so that they can be workers for Christ, and then move on and do it again. That seems to be the model. The Atlantic Union leader, she skips to another ocean. January 8, 1902. There should not be a call to have settled pastors over our churches, but let the life-giving power of the truth impress the individual members to act, leading them to labor interestedly to carry on efficient missionary work in each locality. As the hand of God, the church is to be educated and trained to do effective service. Its members are to be the Lord's devoted Christian workers. Review and Herald, October 22, 1889. If church members are educated 
to be silent and useless members. Let me be clear, this is not my words. This is the messenger of the Lord. But I will read it to you. If church members are educated to be silent and useless members, instead of benefiting the church, they will be a hindrance to its advancement and growth. If they are educated to lean upon the minister, they will become only inefficient inefficient and demoralized members, and the church will be powerless instead of active and efficient. Now, I know that sounds pretty harsh, but I think that's one of the most hopeful statements in the whole lot. Notice what she said again. If church members are educated to be silent and useless members, what does that imply? They don't come by it naturally. To be a silent and useless member takes training. Right? I don't know if anyone in the room is a brand new Seventh-day Adventist. Just out of curiosity, are there any new converts in the room? Okay. Well, if you ever meet a new convert, you'll notice something about them. If they're truly converted, they can't shut up. Have you ever noticed that? They are some talking folk. Right? I mean, and it doesn't matter. And, and, and they don't know how to say it right. They don't know exactly how to articulate it. They can't even recall all this stuff, but they're excited about the fire hose they just drank from, right? And they want to spill it out to everybody. So they'll put the water, you know, a water cooler on their, and they work, and the guy's like, hey, how about the game last week? And he's like, forget about the game. I'm talking about the mark of the beast, brother. And they're just really, you know, shock and awe, preaching. First six weeks in, and they're on fire. Six months later, I mean, there's still a flame, but it's on a kind of a lower, more steady burn. Six years later, if they're still here at all, they have found their place. They've got their little niche, their little pew, their little spot, their little routine. And they've stopped being a missionary and they've just become another member. If church members are educated, you know, I used to think it was such a powerful thing to say, friends, look, every church should be a training center, a training school. And then as I read that statement, it dawned on me. Every church already is a training center. I've never seen a church that put in the bulletin, come next week for our special how to be a useless and lifeless church member. No one's ever intentionally put on that seminar. If they have, quickly talk to your conference leadership, right? But how does the training happen? Just slowly over time, week after week, you learn by osmosis, you become conformed to the status quo. And no one tells the new member, hey, 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 stop talking about the three angels' messages. Be late. <laughs> yeah, don't show up to stuff. Stay away from the church business meeting. They don't ever say that. But they go to church, they go to the evangelistic campaign, there'll be 200 people there. They go to church and there's 100 people there. They go to prayer meeting and there's 20 people there. They go to the business meeting and there's 15 people there. And they're like, oh. And they're being trained. We have churches full of teachers. We need to check our lesson plan a little bit better. Be more intentional about what we're teaching. Let's move on. Ministry of Healing, page 147. 
Everywhere there's a tendency to substitute the work of organizations for individual effort. Have you ever noticed this? You ever been in a room and we all decide on some big idea and let's say, we can do it. And then we all leave and nobody does it. <laughs> Most of the things that we do don't get done. Right? At some point, we has to become me. But she says here, everywhere there's a tendency to substitute the work of organizations for individual effort. Human wisdom tends to consolidation, to centralization, to the building up of great churches and institutions. Multitudes lead to institutions and organizations the work of benevolence, that is, the doing of good for others. They excuse themselves from contact with the world and their hearts grow cold. They become self-absorbed and unimpressible. Love for God and man dies out of the soul. Christ commits to his followers an individual work, a work that cannot be done by proxy. Ministry to the sick and the poor, the giving of the gospel to the lost is not to be left to committees or organized charities. Individual responsibility, individual effort, personal sacrifice is the requirement of the gospel. But have you ever noticed that she's talking about the work of benevolence and giving the gospel to the poor, all of it to the same thing, to the gospel to the world, that all of that doing good that we're supposed to do it at one point fell on the individual, and then we got, oh, good, now there's a bunch of us together. We can do it. It used to be like, man, I had to go give bread to my neighbor, but good, now we have Loma Linda. Now we have Adra. So instead of helping my own neighbor, I'll just give a dollar to the group. Right? Now, I want to be clear, there's nothing wrong with giving to those worthy causes, those institutions. They're a very helpful organization. Praise the Lord for them. But that does not mean that you now are excused from your work. We have to understand that the structure of the church is not to be in the place of the individual, but to equip the individual so that their work can be more effective. Does that make sense? Evangelism, page 382. If I love this one. One of my favorites. If the ministers would get out of the way, if they would go forth into new fields, the members would be obliged to bear responsibilities and their capabilities would increase by use. If the ministers would get out of the way, it almost gets the picture that there's members out there trying to share their faith in glow tracks and the pastor's like, stop, stop, stop. That's not how it works, right? But what she means is that when you have the minister there and he's doing all this work, it's just good to attend and hear a report on how he's doing. That's what church is, right? She says, move on. Just one Sabbath, don't be there. What would happen? The members would get out of the way. They would be obliged. They would have to, by necessity, use their... And she says their capabilities would increase by, what was the word? By use. Has anybody have, ever had a, an injury, uh, an arm or a leg break or a tendon thing that you had to be in a cast or some sort of like device for a certain amount of time? If you were in a, you know, a leg brace cast thing uh, for six weeks, a couple months or something, uh, when they take it off, do you notice a difference between the two legs? Sure. This one is all like, frail and atrophied and emaciated and probably has like kind of a smell to it. You need to wash it. You know, it's icky. Now, I'm not describing church members per se, but, but if you were to 
hop out of bed and say, oh, good, I'm glad to have this leg free again, and you were just to start walking like normal, what would happen? You'd fall over, you'd have a problem. And you would say, oh, 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 this leg doesn't work that well. Any good physical therapist, no good, I should say that, no good physical therapist would come and look at that situation and say, oh my, look at that leg. Boy, that is bad. I hate to break it to you, but I think, I think the best thing for you is bed rest. Just stay off. Or if you really want to go all in, just, let's just amputate. Because apparently walking just isn't your gift. <laughs> right? How many people look at sharing their faith and they say, you know what, I tried that one time, I went door to door and I wasn't any good at it, so it must not be my gift. I'll let the pastor or the evangelist or the Bible worker or the programming director, whatever the thing is, right? But Sister White says, let the minister get out of the way, let the church members take up some work and they're probably going to be bad at it. It's good for them. Now, that good physical therapist is going to say, what well, the first thing you want to do is stretch, probably to a little bit of weight and some limited exercise. She's not going to say go run a marathon, right? But she's not going to say bed rest. She's going to give you a steady diet of little bit by little bit by little bit, and your capabilities would increase by use. Many people are not sharing their faith, not because they're not good at it, or I'll even say this. Many people who do try to share their faith aren't that good at it. But is being bad at something an indication that you should stop doing it? No. It's an indication that you need to do it all the more. <laughs> you got to get better. Right? But we have somehow imbibed a, a philosophy or a theology of spiritual gifts that is unbiblical. Mark Finley said it best, witnessing is not a spiritual gift. No, look at all the New Testament gift lists. Prophecy, that's a spiritual gift. Healing, tongues, those are spiritual gifts. But opening your mouth and sharing with your neighbor the truth of the Bible, that should be standard equipment for the born-again Christian. Okay? But we've specialized it. Say, well, that's the work of the clergy or the evangelist or this or this and that. I'm just a member. We have to fix that. Let's go on. Review and Herald, 19, uh, July 16, 1908. There are many who have never heard from the word the reasons for our faith, and yet some of our ministers feel a burden to hover over little companies of believers in an effort to hold them together. The best way to hold them together is to induce them to maintain a living connection with God and to, and to exert their influence in seeking to draw others to him. The best way to hold a church together is put it to use. Have you ever been in a church where there was some bickering and stuff, but then you had a big evangelistic campaign? If you've ever noticed that whenever the church is working together, everybody's cool with the carpet color. Now, that only lasts for a little while. As soon as the banners come down, they're going to notice the carpet again, whatever. They, but while you're working together, side by side, shoulder to shoulder, you're focused on something beside your own inadequacies or the other person's shortcomings. You start working as a mission, right? The experience in the church changes. Life comes back into the church because you're not just being there, you're working. You have a purpose, you have a mission. Gospel Workers, page 197, she gives a little parable. She says, In some respects, the pastor occupies a position similar to that of the foreman of a gang of laboring men or the captain of a ship's crew. 
They are expected to see that the men over whom they are set do the work assigned to them correctly and promptly, and only in case of emergency are they to execute in detail. Then she gives the parable. The owner of a large mill once found his superintendent in a wheel pit making some simple repairs while a half dozen workmen in the line were standing by idly looking on. So there's the owner, the superintendent, and the workmen. The owner comes in, superintendent is down in a wheel pit, and the workers are watchers. The proprietor, that is the owner, after learning the facts so as to be sure that no injustice was done, called the foreman to his office and handed him his discharge with full pay. Handed him his discharge with, what's another term for that? Fired. You can imagine the scene. He walks by, sees this guy working, he said, hey, when you're done with that, come up to my office. The guy's like, all right, hang on, just, I gotta finish this up, I'll be there in a minute. And he comes up sweating, whoosh, What's up? I only have a minute. They're, they're falling apart down there. i got to go down and do this work. What, what is it I can help you with? He's like, yeah, yeah, real quick. You're fired. What do you mean I'm fired? I'm working myself to death. In fact, I'm the only one down there working. You're going to fire the only worker you've got? And he said, that's my point. You're the only one working. He, she goes on to explain. The parable continues. In surprise, the foreman asked for an explanation. It was given in these words. I employed you to keep six men at work. I found the six idle and you doing the work of but one. Your, now notice this and apply it to the pastor-member relationship. Your work could have been done just as well by any one of the six. It doesn't take a special, like, uh, a special grace from the Lord. It doesn't take some sort of ma miraculous, magical... And by the way, some people, in the, our friends in the Catholic Church, understand ordination to be a thing where you get a special dispensation from God and now you have a power that other members don't have. We do not hold that in the Seventh Adventist Church. Every member is supposed to be a missionary for Jesus Christ, period. She said, your work could have been well, done just as well by any one of the six. And she goes on to say, I cannot afford to pay the wages of seven for you to teach the six how to be idle. Notice they weren't just being idle, they were being taught idleness itself by the superintendent's hard work. The hard work of the superintendent wasn't just bad, it was teaching idleness. Goes on. This incident may be applicable in some cases and in others not, but many pastors fail in not knowing how or in not trying to get the full membership of the church actively engaged in the various departments of church work. If pastors would give more attention to getting and keeping their flock actively engaged at work, they would accomplish more good, have more time for study, for religious visiting, and also avoid many causes of friction. Looking at the clock. We have 10 minutes, is that right? How much time do we have? Anybody know? All right. Yeah. Okay. I'm just going to read through these very quickly. So far, I've been speaking slowly. Here we go. Review in Herald, August 26, 1902. Our ministers are to go forth to proclaim the message of present truth to those who have not heard it, and our churches should not feel jealous and neglected if they do not receive ministerial labor. They should themselves take up the burden and labor earnestly for souls. Believers are to have root in themselves, striking firm root in Christ, that they may bear fruit to his glory. As one man, they are to strive to attain one object, the salvation of souls. 
It is not God's purpose that ministers should be left to do the greatest part of the work of sowing seeds of truth. Men who are not called to the gospel ministry are to be encouraged to labor for the master according to their several ability. Hundreds of men and women, now idle, could do acceptable service. By carrying the truth into the homes of their neighbors and friends, they could do a great work for the master. God is no respecter of persons. He will use the humble, devoted Christians who have the love of the truth in their hearts. Let such ones engage in service for him by doing house-to-house work. Sitting by the fireside, such men, if humble, discreet, and godly, can do more to meet the real needs of families than could a minister. You realize that in our churches, we have, you as an individual member, have far more access to other people than the minister does. You rub shoulders with them in a way that we don't. You are the frontline workers in ministry. And when we seal off that avenue, we're killing our work. Finally, Gospel Workers 352, the work of God in the earth can never be finished. (laughs) By the way, speaking of punctuation, I'm so glad there's not a period there. That'd be the most discouraging statement. The work of God in the earth can never be finished. Let's bow our heads for prayer. (laughs) But that's not what she's saying. She's saying the work of God can never be finished until the men and women comprising our church membership rally to the work and unite their efforts with those of ministers and church officers. I mentioned in the opening introduction here that I was a pastor for at least 15 years before I finally figured out what my job description is. And it's very easy, and I know this is being recorded, but it's very easy to flow along, preach a decent sermon, do a few visits, just kind of be the personable happy guy. And no one has a clue you're being a bad pastor because they think you're being a good pastor. The issue isn't with the pastors. The issue isn't with the lay people. The issue isn't with the conference. The issue is all of us. We have lost sight of the biblical purpose for the church. It does not exist to serve the members, but to train the members to be of service to others. Let me finish with this thought. In recent years, many evangelism training schools have popped up all over the country. Have you noticed that? Uh, I could name pretty much any four or five letters you can put together. You got an acronym and you got a school, right? (laughs) From a pastor's perspective, let me tell you my personal perspective on these schools. First of all, I am thrilled that these schools exist. But I'm also embarrassed that they have to exist. As a pastor, part of my job is to support such fantastic institutions and at the same time to do everything in my power to run them right out of business. How is it possible you can be a member of the Seventh Adventist Church for 10, 20, 30 years and have to go pay somebody to teach you how to give a Bible study? Where have we gone, friends? And how in the world do we get back? Statistically, though perhaps counterintuitively, territories with fewer pastors almost always grow faster. You can go look it up on the statistics and archives page of the Seventh Adventist Church. They keep pretty good statistics on this stuff. And they'll tell you how many pastors there are and how many church congregations, how many members there are, and all this kind of stuff. And you can see what's the ratio of church to, to, to pastor. And how many pastors does each, how many, how many churches does each pastor have? And the territories that have fewer pastors are always growing faster. Now, I could make a radical, an argument could be made, and I want to be clear, I'm not making that argument that pastors kill church growth. That's not true. I am one, and I'm planning on keeping my job. 
But I am saying that poor expectations of pastors by pastors, by members, by conference leaders, by everybody. Let me just say it this way. Pastors aren't doing a bad job. Oftentimes, they're simply doing the wrong job very well. Most instances, pastors are doing your job. And you are doing basically nothing. Are we still friends? Okay, I'm almost done. Hang on. Inspiration is warned and history has demonstrated that settled pastors lead to settled elders and settled deacons and settled members, and we all just kind of settle in right here in a world that is not our home. In the Seventh-day Adventist Church, member should mean missionary. We have to get back to that. Jesus said it this way, Matthew chapter 9, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to the disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the what? The laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It does not say, pray that the work will slow down so the pastors can keep up. It didn't say, decrease the harvest. He says, increase the laborers. We need an increase of the laborers in the Seventh-day Adventist Church today. Let me ask you a question. Has our presentation today been clear? Good. Now, I want to be clear. This is not running down pastors or conference administrators. I, I totally respect them. I do. But every one of us has a part in this drift. It's time we wake up, go back to the word of God and the spirit of prophecy, say, Lord, here am I, send me. Train me, help me out. Now, with a few minutes we have left, I want to tell you about some resources that are available. There are lots of good resources out there. One I happen to be, have a special affinity for is Audioverse. Uh, I've worked with them um, from time to time on different things. And uh, we're going to say that that works. Does that work? This is Alistair Huang from Audioverse, and they have an exciting training opportunity available, and I'll let you speak on it for about a minute and a half. Yeah, sorry, I'm taped up here, so I have to stand up That's here. That's no problem. He's... I'm not trying to upstage the speaker here. Yes, go ahead. Apologies. Be elevated. But uh, Cameron is a pastor in the Michigan Conference, and he also works with the Emanuel Institute of Evangelism. Have you heard of Emanuel Institute? It's... Thank you for plugging that. You should yes. look into the Emanuel Institute of Evangelism. <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. And... Uh, so they employ him, but he's also trying to run them out of business at the same time. Yep. Uh, and we have partnered with them. Audioverse has partnered with Emmanuel Institute to create an online training program for the very things that we've been talking about in this session. How do we utilize our gifts as lay people to share the gospel? And because a lot of us, we don't have the resources or the time, the ability to take four months off to fly to a different place to go to a typical training program, we're bringing that to you. So Cameron, as well as Pastor Mark Howard, who's also doing a seminar here, and a couple other presenters and teachers from the Michigan Conference, all experienced evangelists, will teach you in the comfort of your own home, on your computer, online, wherever in the world you are, at your own pace. And so in the back, I'm going to give you a little flyer like this as more information. It has our booth number, and I'll just let you know the courses that are available are available for a special GYC discount while you're here. And we'll also throw in a nice t-shirt like what I'm wearing if you sign up here. So I won't give you all the spiel, but personal evangelism, public evangelism, how to uh, reinvigorate your church and infuse it with a culture of evangelism, those courses are already online and available for you. So 
get one of these on the way out and come by our booth. Amen. And as this, as this seminar series goes on, we're going to be highlighting some other things. Like you briefly mentioned the Emanuel Institute. We're going to give you some more information about the Emanuel Institute. Uh, Audioverse uh, has got great resources just for listening to sermons, but it was training now, Audioverse Advance. Uh, there's a thing called the Discipleship Handbook. I'm part of the Training Center Church Committee of the Michigan Conference. I'm going to talk to you about that a little bit. And there's this other little document called the Seventh Adventist Church Manual. Okay? Uh, there's an entire session entitled Mining the Manual. It's one of the most radical lay-driven documents in the Seventh Adventist Church, and it's what we're supposed to be doing anyway. It's completely free of charge. You can download it. So I'll tell you the appeal for that sermon will be download the church manual and read it and go put it to work in your own church. But our time is up for this time, so I'm going to ask that we just quickly bow our heads for a word of prayer, and then we'll break. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you so much that you and your infinite wisdom have entrusted us not only with the gift of salvation for ourselves, but with the responsibility of being agents of salvation for others. Lord, please breathe life into the local Seventh-day Adventist church. Stir within each one of us, member or minister regardless, to be soul winners for you. Help us to see those divine opportunities that you lay in our path. Help us to increase our capabilities by use. Train us, equip us, and send us out as your missionaries. We may not be good at it yet, but Lord, make us better. And ultimately, make us more like Jesus. For we pray it in Jesus' name. This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference when all has been heard in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.